if we were to watch the rest of this video, that something was that 20-foot wave that you saw coming in in the last frame of that picture. Um, he says the wave looked at me like it was 20 feet high. Within seconds after this photograph was taken, she was covered by the wave, and I realized that she was gone. The sequence of pictures received quite a bit of attention, and a lot of criticism came into the newspaper about their photographer who watched someone drown in the ocean while he just continued to take pictures. Later in the interview, he admits that he could have made a difference, but instead he chose to observe and take pictures. Now the photographer says he only takes easy and fun pictures because they are less of a burden. In a fascinating study, they um, led 16 people into individual booths and invited them to speak over the intercom about their personal lives and problems, one by one. They could all hear the other, and they in turn were to talk for two minutes. Only one microphone was active at any one time, and there were six participants in each, each group one of whom was an actor. The actor spoke first following a script prepared by the experimenters and he described his problems adjusting to New York and admitted with obvious embarrassment that he was prone to seizures, especially when stressed, and all the participants took a turn. When the microphone was again turned over to the actor, he, he became agitated and incoherent and he said he felt a seizure coming on and he cried out for help. At this point, the microphone of the next participant automatically became active and nothing more was heard from the possibly dying individual. How do you think the participants responded to the person they thought was having a seizure? The report says that only four of the 15 participants responded immediately to the appeal for help. Six stayed in the booth. Five came out only after the seizure victim had nearly choked to death. The article says that the experiment shows that individuals feel relieved of responsibility when they know that others have heard the same request for help. He says, did the results surprise you? Very probably. Most of us think ourselves as decent people who would rush to help in such a situation, and we expect other decent people to do the same. The point of the experiment, of course, was to show that this expectation is wrong. Even normal, decent people do not rush to help when they expect others to take on the responsibility of caring for those in need. This happens to all of us. It happens when you're busy and you see someone broken down by the roadside. You think someone else can help. It happens when we're hurried and we see someone asking for money. We think... There's a lot of people around here. Someone else can help. When we, when we see an appeal related to the great suffering or the great need that's halfway around the world, we watch it on TV and we think, someone else can help. I am very busy. Someone else will do it. I mean, honestly, it happens to all of us, I suppose. Um, but this morning, I want to show you that it did not happen to Jesus. 
it did not happen to Jesus. We continue in our study of Matthew, in the very back end of Matthew chapter 9, where we find that Jesus went through all the cities and villages, big towns and the little towns, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is traveling, and he's teaching, and he's healing. And when you read the stories, the crowds are coming out in almost unbelievable numbers. And when he sees them, he sees their suffering and their oppression. He had compassion for them. And before we do anything else, I want to reaffirm what Ed Martin taught so, so, um, so well for us last week. This is how Jesus feels about you when you are at your, your worst point. When you, are, when you feel farthest from him. When your suffering is the greatest. When Jesus sees you there, this is how he feels. He feels compassion. Dale Bruner says, because Jesus suffers with people, he forms a mission to them. Mission is not motivated by Jesus' disgust for people because they are such sinners, nor even by an imperial sense that he has a right to people, which properly understood he has. Mission is motivated by the more appealing fact of Jesus' compassion for hapless people. Mission in Matthew's gospel, therefore, is not, first of all, an enterprise by which missionaries go out and censoriously shape up the world. Mission is first a task in which disciples go out and compassionately help people out by bringing and representing the good news. Jesus saw them. He saw people struggling, hurting, lonely, betrayed, sick, and he felt compassion for them. A deep down in the gut sense that because of their need, he was for them and he must do something for them. An interesting thing to look up this week, every time the, this idea of compassion is used of Jesus, it's a fascinating little survey of these four Gospels. He, he experiences compassion when he encounters a funeral procession of a widow's only son. He experiences compassion when he comes upon a blind man, when he, when he talks with a rich young ruler, when he's approached by a leper. Jesus, in all of these and other circumstances, his response is compassion. But he never turns and leaves. He never just stands by and takes pictures. Jesus always acts as a result of his compassion. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he teaches, sometimes he challenges, sometimes he even raises the dead. So powerful is his compassion, so powerful is Jesus, okay? our, our good and mighty king. Jesus always responds when he feels compassion. He always acts. Real Christian compassion always leads to action. And it's, 
It's no different this time in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus looks out on the crowds, he's filled with compassion, and he acts. But the way he acts kind of takes us by, by surprise. It's not what he would, we would expect. He doesn't issue a decree and there's no more suffering. Um, there's no more hunger. There's no more sickness. That's not what Jesus does, not this time. Instead, this time, Jesus turns to his disciples. This is what he says to his disciples. This is Jesus' action in response to his compassion. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The action that Jesus is compelled to do by his compassion for the crowds of people who are suffering, they're like sheep without a shepherd, is that his disciples should pray. And they should pray for workers to go out into that harvest. I love the way um, one writer translated this. He said, the the harvest is huge, but the workers are few. Um, there are hardly any workers. This idea of a huge harvest is both hopeful and, and daunting at the same time. It's hopeful because of the potential. It's huge. It's daunting because there are so few workers. And at, Jesus, at the point Jesus is teaching us, there are really very few workers. Really, there's one worker. Okay, at this point, Jesus is doing it all. Okay. He's pretty much, in Matthew so far, he's been pretty much a one-man show. There have been no real um, involvement of the disciples in any significant ministry uh, until now. And we see a tipping point in Matthew and things begin to change. Um, but the workers are really, really few. So, faced with this great need... And these overwhelming odds, feeling great compassion for those lost and suffering with no shepherd, Jesus acts by saying the disciples need to pray. Um, and again, uh, this is not what we would expect. Um, we would expect miracles. Okay? Or at least some strategy. Some strategy for getting the, the message out. But Jesus just says, pray. Okay. And you think, really? Is that all, Jesus? Just pray? Can't, you can't do any better than pray for crowds, thousands of people who are suffering? Um, one thing becomes very apparent to us at this point. Prayer must matter a great deal more to Jesus than we think it does. Because this is what his compassionate response to the needs of thousands of suffer, who are suffering apart from the Father is. It's as though this is the most powerful response imaginable. Pray. Call the disciples to pray. He, he lays this as the foundation for the unfolding of his entire mission. He lets the solution to the suffering of these crowds and their sadness Hinge on this, the prayers of the disciples. So Jesus is inviting us then, by means of prayer, to join in his compassion for the great multitudes who do not know him as the good shepherd. And of course, this begs the question, how's your prayer life doing? If this 
If your prayers are the deal in the mission, it's the foundation on which the great rescue is to be sent out, how's the foundation of the mission? Um, It's interesting. um, Studies say that a majority of Americans pray daily. Majority of Americans. Now, I trust that you're among them. The interesting question would be how they pray, how you pray. Sometimes I think it's more just going through the motions than anything. Jesus thinks that the prayers of the church are the hope of the world. How does that make you feel about your prayers? See, this, this, is a, this is a huge priority for those of us who are in the church, those of us who follow Jesus. Um, it deserves more. Let me just point out one thing. It deserves more than a slot as you multitask. Okay? I love, I hear this all the time. I talk with um, men about their prayer life, and they say, well, I have a, I have a 30-minute commute, and I pray while I drive. And I think... I'm really glad you pray while you drive. It's probably the most redemptive thing you can do while you drive. But if prayer is the foundational expression of the compassion of Jesus for the world, doesn't it deserve more than just one ball that you're juggling along with a bunch of other balls? I mean, is the best we can offer, if it's that important, I'll fit it in while I drive. Now, keep fitting it in while you drive. Don't stop praying while you drive. Who knows what that would lead to. Okay? Keep praying while you drive. But I'm just saying, if you see what I see and what Jesus is teaching us here, should there be more? Should, it be, should there be a time of more focused, undivided, high-quality time given to what's before us here in prayer? The other thing that, may, that I think about as I wrestle with this is um, I, think we, I think this really ramps up what it means when, for the church to gather for prayer. Um, one, one, one writer I was reading this week said it really well. He says, he says where there is little prayer, there is little mission. A creeping death, he writes, sweeps over the mission of many churches in our time because, quite simply, prayer meetings have ceased. Now, prayer meetings have not ceased at Northwake. Uh, When I go to um, pastor gatherings, which I do on occasion, and there are other pastors there, and they hear about how many of you come for corporate prayer. There are often a couple hundred people in this room for corporate prayer. They want to know what we are doing to generate that kind of interest in prayer. I find that very sad. Because I love the way you pray. I am not content with the way you pray. Some of you have never been to our monthly corporate prayer meeting. Uh, You should change that. Some of you are easily derailed from our monthly corporate prayer gathering in this room. You should change that. This room should be full. We fill this twice any given Sunday morning. Um, 
Surely we could fill it once, once a month for prayer. If, if what Jesus is teaching us really matters here. And when you think about it, the focus of the praying here that Jesus is calling the disciples to do is really, ultimately, for those who are without Christ. Those, are, those who are like sheep without a shepherd, who are lost and far from God. And so, that ought to mark our prayers. We ought to be regularly, faithfully, intensively praying for those we know and love, live by, work with, our family with, who don't have a shepherd yet. They're distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. We all know them. We all love them and care about them. It's clear here that we ought to be praying for them. And when you look at the New Testament and how people pray for those outside the kingdom, it's interesting how those, the shape those prayers take. Um, Paul is a great example in this. In Colossians 4, he says, At the same time, pray, pray also for us, first thing, that God may open to us a door for the word. So he says, pray for an open door for the gospel. Ask for opportunities to speak to people about Jesus. That's the first thing. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that, that I may make it clear is the second thing he says. And I know many of us are afraid to talk about Jesus because we're afraid we'll, we'll get it all messed up. Um, well, the, the remedy to that, in part, Paul says, is pray that I'd be clear. Pray for an open door. Pray that I would be clear. And then in Ephesians, he says... Pray for me that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That I may declare it boldly, he says again, as I ought to speak. So he prays for an open door. And when that door opens, that I'd be clear and that I'd be bold. These are fantastic ways to pray when you think about praying for the lost. And it's interesting. They're all about praying for yourself to be useful. And when you pray this way, for an open door, for clarity and for boldness, guess what happens? Doors open. You speak with remarkable clarity, and you're bolder than you ever thought you would be. The, the other day I was at this meeting at uh, the high school my kids attend, my, my daughter attends. She's involved in this thing called Teen Pep. Okay, it is a, a peer education program related to sexuality in teens, where they select uh, ninth and 10th graders who uh, are exemplary in these matters, and they teach ninth graders about um, sex. It's an interesting environment. Okay? The program is wholly secular and really doesn't have a whole lot to offer other than information. But the students can say anything they want and some of these kids are remarkably bold in what they say about these matters. It's really incredible. So I go to this thing, and what I find out I've gone to is that the kids are now teaching the parents about how to talk to kids about sex. So I find myself in this auditorium, a bunch of kids teaching me about this, and then they break us up into small groups. Okay, so I'm sitting around with a handful of strangers and a bunch of teenagers, about another handful of teenagers that I don't know, and we're talking about sex. Just, just picture this environment. And uh, 
And so this is the shape of the conversation. What was it like? What, was, what were the sexual messages sent by media, family, friends, etc.? We had different categories to work with. Back in your day, my day, like the dark ages, um, <laughs> compared to now. And so we're going around, we're talking about things. And when it comes my turn, I get to talk about what it was like with my peers and tell them we had a radical encounter with God in high school that changed us. And so we helped each other in the, we helped protect each other in these matters. And so there I am sitting with a bunch of strangers and kids talking about sex, and I get an opportunity to speak of Christ and the difference he makes. If you will pray the prayers of Paul, those doors will open. And of course, the the other thing he prays is this in Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Pray that they may be saved. We can use those scriptures too. You can take that little handful of scriptures and you can pray them as you pray for your friends and your neighbors and your classmates. But here in our case... Jesus' specific instruction to the disciples take a different slant. They are praying, not for the things I just mentioned, as valuable and scriptural as are. Jesus says, pray for workers. That's what I want you to pray for. Pray for workers to go out into this huge harvest that is way understaffed. Okay? It's just me, Jesus says, in this little corner of the globe, Right now. And the crowds are huge. And you know what? The ratios remain somewhat overwhelming to this day. Um, There are... The world has, by by missiologists, the world's been broken into groups of folk called people groups. They share a language, they share a culture. If you want to get a message to them, you really got to learn their language and their culture and step into it with them. So... Uh, the world's not really just broken up meaningfully into continents or even countries. It's, it's groups of people. They're called people groups as a result. There are over 11,000 people groups in the world. Almost 7,000 are considered unreached by the gospel. That means less than 2% of the people in that, in that group of, of folk, in their culture, are uh, Evangelical Christians, folks like you and me who believe the Bible and try to follow after Christ with all our heart. Less than 2% in the majority of the people groups in the world. 7,000 of the 11,000. There's another little section. 3,000 of those people groups are called, um, if unreached people groups are UPGs, then these people are UUPGs. They're unreached and unengaged Think uber unreached people groups. There are no missionaries there. There's no church there. There's no strategy implemented to take the gospel to them. 3,000 groups of people around the world have no access to the message that we're talking about this morning. Absolutely no access, humanly speaking. So... We pray that God would send out workers. 
into that huge harvest. There's a lot of people out there with no shepherd. They're they're distressed and downcast. Um, Harvest is still huge. The workers are few by comparison. Um, There are four billion people amongst these unreached people groups, and only two to three percent of the world's missionaries are working there. We need to pray for workers to go out in this harvest, this huge harvest. Jesus is moved by these kind of ratios, um, whether in his day or in ours. He's moved to compassion over this, and he invites us this morning to join him in that compassion, a compassion that leads to action as we pray for workers. Pray for workers to be sent out. Pray that North Wake would send out more workers. I know of no church our size that has as many workers out amongst these people as we do. We need to send more, okay? I'm... (laughs) Is there a theme here? I'm thrilled with the way we're sending out people. I'm not content. Okay? We need more to go. Who's going to go? This is how I know how to pray about these matters. You can do it too. That's really tiny, and I apologize for that. It's called the unreached people of the day. This is an email I get every day that tells me one of these you know, several thousand groups of people that aren't, aren't reached yet. And it gives me information about them. This is about the Turks in Turkey, where North Wake actually has people already working uh, there in Turkey with these folk. And it tells me um, some about their situation in different ways I can pray for them. It shows me a map where they're located and access to a whole bunch more information if I feel compelled to learn more and pray more. And they send me this every day. This was yesterday's. Every day I get an email saying, pray for these people. Pray Pray that workers would go to these people who are yet to hear, almost in their entirety are yet to hear. And um, that is called the Unreached People of the Day. It's by the Joshua Project. And if you'll just Google that, you'll find it, and they are happy to send it to you. No, no charge. It'll, just, it'll come to your inbox every day. Jesus now goes on and and he calls to him his 12 disciples and he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. And so what we have now is the beginning already of the answer to their prayers. This uh, likely a larger group of disciples say, Jesus says, pray for workers and they pray and Jesus picks 12 and he's going to send them out as those workers. He gives them authority to do kingdom works, to do great miracles. Um, And this just seems logical now. Pray for workers, hear the workers. What's really odd are who these workers are. And they tell us in the next verse, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Can- uh, Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So it's a fascinating group of people. It, it's listed different ways throughout the Gospels, um, always in groups of four, same groups of four, uh, the same leader to each group of four, same name first in each group of four, though the order within that is a little jumbled up. Um, Peter is always first. Judas is always last uh, in these lists. But what's of interest to us today is that these are pretty regular folk. You know, they would, 
they would fit right in here today. They are, um, nobody's got multiple PhDs on this list. Um, Nobody's high up in government. There are no kings or presidents or celebrities on this list. Just some brothers who were fishermen. Um, and some say that that was, in the 12, the highest social stratum of the 12 fishermen. That's as good as it got. Beyond that, you've got tax collectors. You've got a political activists. Um, the first guy in the list is the one who would deny Jesus three times. The last one is the one who would betray him uh, to the cross. And everybody in between would abandon him while he was there. It's been said that about 10 of these 12 men, we know little or nothing about them. They are, um, for instance, Bartholomew and Thaddeus. Who knows anything about those? You've got the other James and the other Simon. Um, other than their names, we just hardly know anything about them, such that Jesus has summoned a bunch of undereducated, socially insignificant unknowns to bring his compassion to the world. So you get the sense it's really not about them, ultimately. Jesus is going to do this work through very unlikely folk. And this is the answer to the disciples' prayers. And it's significant to realize that some of the disciples, these 12, were the answer to their own prayers. They prayed for workers, and the next thing they know, they're the workers. It starts with not being isolated from the needs of people. Jesus was lots of things. He was not an isolationist. And the 12 were drug everywhere with him. They saw the crowds. And then it moves to prayer for those people. And then, and then it moves to people being called. Um, would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to be the answer to your own prayers? If you start praying for the Turks in Turkey, would you be willing to go one day? Some of you are absolutely not there yet, but Jesus doesn't start there. He starts and just says, you pray for them. You pray that workers will go. And then we'll see. Not all that prayed went, but these 12 did. They were the answer, in some sense, to their own prayers. So Jesus now moves from gathering the 12 who are about to be sent out in a very symbolic uh, mission. Now he gives them instructions, and he starts with where they are to go. He says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, okay, the non-Jews, the nations, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They are to prioritize Israel, not to the Gentiles, not to the surrounding peoples. Stay where in Israel with the Jews. Why does Jesus choose this strategy? He doesn't really tip his hand fully. It may simply have been a continuation of the strategy uh, from the Old Testament where the, the, the good news about God and his Messiah came to the Jews so that they would be a blessing to the nations, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Um, it could just be a, a logistically strategic matter. Start where you are. Start with who you are. You're a Jew. You're amongst Jews. Don't go running off somewhere else. Work with the Jews. Whatever the reason, what it's not is some kind of xenophobic snobbery where the nations are excluded from Israel's privileged message. It is not that at all because we know if we go to the back end of Matthew, the commission Jesus gives to his disciples there is this. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of 
all nations. So this is a step towards that, though Jesus does not fully tell us exactly why. So he moves on then and he tells them uh, what they are to proclaim. Verse 7 and 8. Proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So they're to declare that the kingdom has come near. That means the king has come near. This is Jesus' own message. You remember back earlier in Matthew, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the acts of healing and demonic cleansing are signs of the kingdom. They're the works of the king. They authenticate the messengers and their message. They are the work Jesus himself has been doing, and now it's given to these disciples. Um, they, are, they, the disciples, are now his compassion in action as they care for those who suffer and those who are spiritually oppressed. This is the shape of the kingdom that is to come. There will be no sickness. There will be no death. There will be no evil. Um, they are bringing these disciples the signs of the kingdom with the message of the kingdom, so the message will be believed. The next set of instructions gets real interesting. It's about economics. Okay? You received without paying, so give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So what they are dispensing, the mercies of the kingdom of God, they got at no charge. They should not charge for it. They are to give in like fashion. The principle seems to be that of protecting the purity of the message and the heart of the messenger because financial gain, ministry done for financial gain can mess you up. Okay? All of a sudden, the mission becomes about me and my gain. And that's not what it's about at all. It's about the king. And those who need that king. It's about the shepherd and those who need a shepherd. Um, so they are instructed not to take provisions, but to wholly trust in God's provision in every way. Place to stay, clothes to wear, all their needs. Trust in God. Don't lean on your own supplies. Last thing he tells them, where to stay. So where to go, what to take, where to stay. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for them, or than for that town. So here we have the promise of the provision of God in a place to stay, and more importantly, of receptive hearts to their message and to them as messengers as they go. There will be those who will receive them and their message. This is a huge encouragement they're going out. You know, they're going out with nothing, and God's going to provide. God will provide for them. But it says there will also be those who will reject them and their message. And they have been prepared for that as well. So we have all these detailed instructions for these disciples being sent out. The big, kind of the elephant in the room is, so what do we do with that? Are these instructions for every Christian? 
is this how every Christian is supposed to live their life? Um, You know, the compassion of Jesus, the prayers for workers, that's pretty applicable. But what about this stuff? Um, Should every pastor abide by this? Every missionary? How do they fit us if they fit us at all? And it's, it's kind of complicated to sort all that out. But I'd like to share with you this morning what helps me figure out what I'm supposed to carry away from from this passage. Um, There are three things that I do that help me. First of all, I look to see if there are limiting factors that would make this just be for them then and not for everyone forever in every situation. So I look to see if there are uniquenesses about the setting that would limit the application to their day and time. All scripture is equally valuable for us Not all scripture is directly applicable to all of us all the time. So I look to see if there are any limitations. I look to the rest of scripture to see um, if this is a common, if not universal, practice for God's people all the time. Do they do this all the time? Especially I look to the rest of the New Testament and see in the life of the church. That has the most direct application to us today. Is the easiest um, for me to sort that out. So I look there, and then I fly pretty high, okay? I don't try to apply every single detail. I try to figure out what are the big ideas that Jesus is teaching his people? What are the main principles here? And how do those sit in my life? So I fly pretty high. I discern the big ideas and principles, and I apply those, not necessarily all the details. I look for limiting factors, and I look for the broader example of scriptures, especially the New Testament church. Um, So... Walk back through these directions with me and let's see how they sit with us. So the first thing you have, where they should go, just Israel, not the nations. Should we just be concerned about Israel and not the nations? Well, I think the obvious answer as you look at the rest of the New Testament is no. No. There's a huge shift that happens and there's this huge emphasis on going to all the nations. That's what Paul's job was. Take it to the nations. Jesus' commission at the end of Matthew, we saw it already. Make disciples of all nations. So we can see that that's really not, no longer the prioritization that we saw on this particular journey by this particular group of 12 disciples, 12 disciples likely corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel, and there's some symbolism involved there. And just strategically speaking, we're not Jews. Most of us are not Jewish in our heritage, so it doesn't make sense for us to just focus on Jewish. There are neat ministries that do that. Jews for Jesus is one of those. They have a special outreach and focus on that. So we should not neglect the Jews. If you pray with me on that daily prayer thing for unreached peoples, certain groups of Jews around the world will come up and we'll pray for them. But there's no longer an exclusive or even a priority focus on them in the rest of the scriptures or in our lives. So the next little section um, is about what we should say. And particularly, we wonder about, do we all have authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons? Heal all the afflicted. Um, And it, it seems, as you look through the rest of the New Testament, God makes provision for healing ministries in the church. If you look through the gifts in 1 Corinthians, there are gifts of the Spirit that lead to healing. 
There are specific directions that our church follows regularly after our Sunday services. Our elders gather to pray for the sick and to anoint them with oil in James chapter 5. Those continue to be ways in which the church exercises this kind of ministry. Um, But clearly, not all the sick were healed and not all the dead were raised as you go through the rest of the New Testament. And uh, Dale Bruner summarizes this pretty helpfully from my perspective. He says, um, Today we are not ordinarily armed with authority to raise the dead as Jesus and his apostles were. This must be clearly stressed against the Pentecostals, Charismatics, and others who would make us think we are. But we can do something because each Christian has a gift with some kind of healing in it. No reader of the gospel can doubt for a moment that gospel healings mandate us to solidarity with the sick and to warfare with their afflictions. But honesty requires us to acknowledge that most of us have not received the apostles' direct gift of authority from Jesus to heal. We do have direct authority from Jesus to care, to help, and to pray for healing or for special strength to bear the absence of healing. We are all given some gift, and so the big responsibility um, to seek some form of healing should keep Christians praying. I think that's wise counsel for us. We do have God-given means to bring healing. The prayers of the elders are an important part of that. And if you struggle with an ongoing difficult illness... Contact one of our elders. We'll gather. We'll pray for you according to the scriptures and anoint you with oil. And we have seen God heal through that method. He doesn't heal everybody. Not immediately. He will one day. But we've just recently seen a young lady that we prayed for who was visiting our church just for the express purpose that we would pray for her and her disease. And we prayed for her and she's gone into remission. And we give God glory and credit and honor for that. Because we have followed his good patterns, pieces of the kingdom break through in those ways. The kingdom works to ease suffering and to relieve the oppression of evil. We too can and should do that ministry. You should pray for your neighbors who are sick. You should go visit them in the hospital. You should pray that the mercy and power of Jesus would come to them. And you should speak of the kingdom and the king to them as you pray that they may be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Let's look real briefly at these last two questions about, so you heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, but you receive without paying, you give without pay, you've got no gold or silver, no spare sandals, nothing. Are we all supposed to be paupers? Are we all supposed to be poor? No closets, never shopping at Food Lion. Is that the life of the Christian, the follower of Christ? Um, Again, you look at the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul received gifts from people to pay for his ministry. Um, He says that elders or pastors are worthy of their wage uh, in another place, in 1 Timothy 5. Um, So it doesn't seem that the entire church was to be given this kind of Homeless, itinerant, poverty-stricken life. We would just, that would be kind of a common sense understanding of that. But there are some good principles for us here. And that is that the kingdom is not for our enrichment. It's not for my gain. 
I can't do the ministries God gives to me primarily for me to get rich off of it or at all for me to get rich off of it. That's not the point. Our ministry ought not depend on our resources, but on God who meets our needs and makes our ministries possible. But it's not about us. It's about the king. It's not about what I get out of it. It's giving the king as shepherd to those who have need of him. And then real briefly, the last one in verses 11 through 15. um, Showing up, people take us into their homes. They feed us. We live with them. But then there are other people who reject us and we shake the dust off our feet. So... Again, their circumstances are a bit unique. They're sent out as itinerant traveling evangelists. That's not all of our calling. So this would not have direct application like that. But we do again see the big idea here is that what God calls you to, He will provide for you to do. Whether that's clothing and resources you need, or a place to stay, or most significantly, people who are receptive to your ministry. Many of our missionaries go out into these unreached villages and they look for a person of peace, a worthy person who Jesus defines it as someone who welcomes them and welcomes their message, is open to their message. So think about that. In your neighborhood, is there somebody that is open to you and to spiritual things? That could be the person of peace that opens your whole neighborhood up. That could be the worthy person that helps you bring the gospel to everybody in that setting. It is part of praying for those open doors that God gives to us. So should we shake the dust off from our feet if someone doesn't respond? And this is the last thing that I'll address this morning. In their, in their background, when a Jew went and traveled through Gentile lands, they got defiled. So when they come home and they get back to their homeland, they would shake all the Gentile dust off their clothes because they were unclean. Jesus is flipping that back around on them and saying, if you reject me, then you're the one who is unclean and is going to have your dust shaken off of my messenger's clothes. You're the one, he says very vividly, are going to encounter judgment. It is a sober sober warning to the Jewish people they were being sent to that this message really mattered more than anything that they could imagine. To reject Jesus is the most serious of offenses. But with a warning, there's always hope offered. You offer a warning to a people with the hope that they'll change and they'll believe. So this is not some mean-spirited, angry act This is a warning with the hope that they'll believe and repent. But no, in our culture, it would be meaningless if you stood at your neighbor's house and kicked dust off your feet before you left. Okay, That's a meaningless gesture. But you might, if you've had long extended conversations with them about the gospel and they reject it, you might bring this warning to them. That there is destruction that waits for those who reject Jesus that God regards it very seriously, and you don't want them to experience that. You might be here this morning as one of those skeptics. And these are Jesus' words to you, Jesus' words, that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed completely for their wickedness, and Jesus is warning you that if you reject him, the same fate, a worse fate, waits for you.
You are the ones whose life brought compassion to Jesus. And he is warning you out of that compassion today that you need to place your trust in him. Stop trying to earn your way to God and trust in Christ who died on the cross for your sins to be raised on the third day. But this morning, for those of us who are followers, how's your compassion? Does it lead to prayerful action for those who are without Christ? Or are you taking pictures from a safe distance? The last thing that LaShonda Calloway saw before she died was people literally stepping over her to continue shopping as if nothing happened. Calloway had stopped to shop in a convenience store in Wichita, Kansas when she was stabbed in an altercation. As she lay dying, a surveillance camera recorded no less than five people stepping over her to continue down the store aisles. Only one stopped briefly to take a picture of Calloway with a cell phone. It was tragic to watch, police spokesman Gordon Basham said. The fact that people were more interested in taking a picture with a cell phone and shopping for snacks than helping this innocent young woman is frankly revolting. Wichita Police Chief Norman Williams had even stronger words. He says, this is crazy. What happened to our respect for life? Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Jesus, have mercy on us. We are great sinners. Selfish, busy people who hope that others will have the time to care. When your whole mission is founded on your compassion. And your action plan is rooted in us praying compassionate prayers that workers would be sent and that in some way we might be among them. So Lord, I pray now for my friends who sit in front of me that in your kindness you might show them the root compassion is to take in their life and the action that it requires as only you can. Jesus, have mercy on us. We ask this in your name. Amen.